We Irish have a great propensity in, in the hospitality business. And, and you, all over the world you will find Irish people who have done extraordinarily well in the business because we have this natural ability to talk and, and, and to make people feel comfortable. And, and it's a much sought-after skill um, that doesn't exist in lots of nationalities. The Architects of Business on Joe, in partnership with the EY Entrepreneur of the Year programme, telling the story of Ireland's leading entrepreneurs across the island of Ireland. How do you put a value on the gift of the gab? Well, today we'll hear from the man who's turned it into a billion euro enterprise. This is The Architects of Business, Joe's weekly series of interviews with leading entrepreneurs in partnership with EY Entrepreneur of the Year. I'm Ty Genwright and today I'll be chatting to Pat McCann, who started Delata Hotels just before the crash and managed to make the crisis work for him. We knew that from once the banks would start to sell, they sell quickly. So we bought hotels that were well below replacement cost. And that, that stood to us and still stands to us today. Eleven years later, Delata has nearly 40 hotels and two big brands, Moldron and Clayton Hotels. We had paid £46 million for it in 2007 and the value of the business in 2009 was €2 million. Euro. In 2014, that value had risen to €40 million, and today it's tipping £1.3 billion. Hotel rooms are in short supply, particularly in Dublin and Cork. But despite claims of profiteering, Pat believes the prices are fair. We are number one in occupancy in Europe. But in terms of room rate, we're, we're number 10. So the idea that Dublin, from an international perspective, is, is expensive is simply not true. For all hotels, there's an elephant in the room. The biggest provider of accommodation the world over is not a big hotel chain, but Airbnb. They are the largest provider of accommodation in the world today, with a market cap greater than all of the hotel groups put together. Today we'll hear Pat's views on building a hotel heavyweight from scratch and how to give great customer service. Pat, thanks very much for coming in to talk to us today. Um, things seem to be going absolute great guns in the hotel business right now. Yeah, and I suppose um, it's, it's a kind of a pinch yourself and say, how did we get here uh, in such a short space of time? Uh, because it's not very long ago when we had the famous Peter Bacon report that said we needed to lose 10,000 rooms out of Ireland because we were over hoteled And suddenly we're moving in the opposite direction where there's a shortage in some of the key urban areas. I mean, how does the, 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 the number of rooms out there right now, and we know there's, you know, lots of people say there's a shortage, but how does the number now compare with, say, the peak of the boom? At, at peak in Ireland, we had about 60,000 rooms. Uh, and we, we dropped down to below 57,000. And it is slowly coming back. Um, and, and when you look at where the shortage is, really, it's, it's in probably two urban areas. That's Dublin and Cork at this point in time. But Galway is catching up fast as well. So you will find uh, that there will be a shortage. Because the problem in the hotel business is that, that if it's not renewing itself... Um, it suddenly finds itself uh, with a shortage. It's like, like every city in the world has to have 
almost a constant build of new hotels because old hotels get redeveloped or taken out of the system and you have what we call natural wastage. So we're not back up there, you're saying, to, to where we were at the peak of the boom. There were no, 60,000. I mean, how much more do we need to go to close the gap? Well, that's the big debate because, you see, outside the two major urban areas, Dublin and Cork, we probably have sufficient stock. But it's in those two areas where we have now uh, seen a shortage. Uh, and it takes time for this to happen. And it also takes the economics to work as well. So it's not just good enough to say, well, we'll build hotels and, you know, Dublin is flying and room rates are, 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 are increasing all the time. Uh, the economics have to work as well for an investment case. Market forces, though, being what they are, obviously, if there's a shortage, the price goes up. And lots of people out there complaining about the price of hotels, particularly in, in, in Dublin right now. Yeah, and I think, you know, when you look at, at, at uh, Dublin and, and look at it from an international perspective, and just even take it from a European perspective, we are number one in occupancy in Europe. Uh, and we, we've been tipping with London. They win one year, we win the next year. But in terms of room rate, we're, we're number 10th. In Europe, and I'm not talking about the big cities. I'm talking about places like that you could compare Dublin to, like Copenhagen, Amsterdam, Barcelona. We're still be- well behind this. We're about 15 to 20 percent behind those guys in room rate. So the idea that Dublin, from an international perspective, is is expensive is simply not true. And the other thing that I would say is that the problem for the Irish consumer, where where most of the complaints come from, is that they were used to uh, 2009, 10, 11 and 12, when we had unsustainably low room rates and suddenly we had to move on that. And it's no coincidence that you had little or no new hotel development in Dublin or in Ireland because economics don't work. And and if the economics don't work, they don't get built. Well, it's how, as simple as that. How do you price your rooms? Is it based on what it costs to, to, to put them there? Mm. Or is it based on, on demand? It's, it's like, you it's, know, everyone's booking for, for July and August. We can, we can you know, put a bit more it's, on it's there. A, it's a very mis- misunderstood art. So typically in a hotel, you have what you call your base business, which is things like tour operator or corporate business. And then sitting on top of that, you have what you call your transient. That could be leisure or corporate. And that that price changes almost by the hour. Um, so typically, in uh, give today in Dublin, most of my hotels in Dublin could change the room rates for today five or six times depending on the way demand curve is moving. And we have trending analysis and we have lots of tools that help us price at the right rate. So if demand continues to go up, prices move upwards. If, if it starts to drop away, prices come down. But it's, 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 it's a very well-defined art now. Is, is that an algorithm out there kind of pulling those levers? Are there actual people making the decisions? There's, it's always human intervention. It is absolutely key to what we do. Without human inter- We have the technologies, but without human intervention, technology usually makes the wrong decision. Mm. I mean, what's, what do you think is a kind of a fair price in, in a city like Dublin for a, a three- or a four-star hotel? It's, it's difficult to know what, what, what... It depends on your point of view of fair. Like, like a, a good quality one. Like, like you, you, you have to be talking about €150 Euro and northwards 
uh, in terms of to give you an economic return. That's but you rarely get that, like because when you look at at the average prices achieved in Dublin over a twelve month period, it's about one hundred and twenty, one hundred and twenty five euro. So it is, it is. It is still on the kind of outside point of where you would expect room rates to be from a European perspective. So you're saying you make a loss, actually, if, with a room at 120? No, you don't make a loss, but you don't give enough return in terms of the investment. So it's, it's, it's a question of, you know, if I have a, a site, will I build a hotel, and an office block or a residential? And at the moment, offices will give you the best return, residential will give you the next best return, and hotels are third in the asset class that gives you return. So it is not as simple as, say, put up a hotel. there's There's an old joke told that if you want to become a millionaire in the hotel business, you have to start out as a billionaire. <laughs> so it gives you a sense of where it's at. So what led you into the trade then, Pat? By accident, Oops. Uh, I, I, I was in, in Sligo. I, I come from South Sligo, which is small farmland country. And in order to get a few bob for myself, I started working in the Yates Country Hotel in Ross's Point. Uh, and I got smitten with the bug. And the, the rest is history. So I've been in the business since 1969. What was it about the bug that uh, It was just something you? about the interaction with people. And... The opportunities that exist for people within our industry and people say, well, there's not that many, but there's there's loads and there's loads of things you do. And it is incredibly difficult for once you have this hotel bug to switch into anything else. It's just it just doesn't do it for you. It sounds addictive. It is addictive. Absolutely addictive. And, and a lot of people who are in it really love it and enjoy it. And is it just the, the interaction with people? It is, yeah. And you're usually in a kind of what I call a nice environment. So you tend to have lots of things going. And, and by and large, you meet lots and lots of nice people uh, because they're in relaxed mode. They're either on holidays or they're away for a few days. So they're, they're much more relaxed and, and, and it's, it's, it tends to be a nice environment. Do you not sometimes reach the end of a day and your face is almost aching from all the smiling you've been doing and sometimes it might feel a little bit, you know, forced yeah. by the end of the day anyway? No, I think, I think uh, like, uh, we Irish have a great propensity in, in the hospitality business and, and you, uh, all over the world you will find Irish people who have done extraordinarily well in the business because we have this natural ability to talk and, and, and to make people feel comfortable. And, and it's a much sought-after skill um, that doesn't exist in lots of nationalities. So uh, we have this ability, and, and it is one of the things that has worked very well for us. So how does the trade today compare with back in the day when you were, uh, you know, making your way in the Yates mm. Country Hotel, Yates County Hotel, yeah. um, and, and even later on when you started getting into involved yeah. in the Irish chains? I suppose... For the first probably 20-odd years of, of my life in the business, it didn't change that much. You had kind of, I suppose, semblances of technology beginning to appear. We got property management systems back in the 80s, uh, which which were so antiquated and, and so uh, user-unfriendly. It was simply untrue as to how, how it ever made it out. And then I suppose the real change has happened in the last 10 years where what we call the disruptors 
have started and you have things like the, the third parties, the OTAs. Uh, the, the online booking websites, online, like online booking booking websites and absolutely. Uh, they have changed the face of things. And I suppose that has driven a huge um, level of activity around the way we use technology now because hotels have had to respond to that uh, in whatever way possible. Uh, and that has changed the way we do business and the way, I suppose, the big changes in the way we get our business now as opposed to years ago when it was much more personal and, and uh, I suppose, contact to contact. Explain to me, though, how, how like a booking.com or whatever has, has changed things. So I suppose in the old days, somebody wanted to book a hotel, they either got in touch with a travel agent or they just kind of knew the hotel or saw an ad and picked yeah. up the phone and called them themselves. Yeah. The fact that people can go online and, and, and just, you know, with a few clicks have a room yeah. booked, how has that changed things for you exactly? It, well, it's changed things in, in that, that, that the cost of acquiring your business has increased. So you're now paying commission which you didn't before because you have to pay a commission to OTAs if if you want to use them. You don't have to use them, by the way. You can decide, I'm not using these, but then you're probably missing out on a vital kind of channel for, for a new business. And that has fundamentally changed the way we think about business and how we do our mix of business. So, you know, how much what we call owned business can you have in your hotel? And what I mean by owned business, like we pre-contract with tour operators we pre-contract with our corporates who come direct to us and we don't pay commissions on that but we do have to discount the rates in order for that to work from the corporate and tour operator point of view and then what you do is you you give out to other distribution channels like the OTAs but there are many others that that you then uh, give rooms out to in order to sell your 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 hotel what about the way in which those booking websites kind of list the hotels? Because, I mean, obviously you can pay for, shall we say, you know, preferential place in the yes. listings. And there's also, I mean, every time I feel like I go on, on these websites, it feels like they're saying, well, there's only one room left. You better book it now. Yeah, that, is, that, is that true? No. no you see, the, the difficulty for the third parties, the OTAs, is that they're only given a small allocation. And they may only have one or two rooms left and as part of their allocation. But in reality, the hotel may have more rooms through other channels. So it is not, it's not true. And I see the EU are beginning to outlaw that now. They think it's an unfair practice that they're actually saying there's only two or three rooms left. And it's kind of forcing people to make a decision maybe quicker than they would normally because they feel if they don't... The, the airlines do this all the time as well. You'll go on and you'll say three seats left. Um, but that tends not to be true either. Do you think people are wise enough to see through it at this stage? I'm not sure that they do, actually. I think I think people get a little bit nervous when they see, you know, a limited availability and they say, God, if we don't do something, there's going to be nothing left. So I think there's some challenges around that that need to be rectified. What about the likes of Airbnb? Do you think does that need, you know, are they a reasonable competitor or do you think something's got to change? What will happen over time is that you will have to have some form of regulation because, you know, when Airbnb was set up, it was set up that somebody would let a room in their house. But now you have what we call commercial Airbnbers where they have a number of apartments or even blocks of apartments where they're being let under Airbnb. So they're quasi-hotels almost without the regulation. And what you'll see is that that will get regulated and that the traditional idea of how Airbnb works will be much more, I suppose, to the fore, for want of a better word. Are you fine with Airbnb in that traditional form where it's oh, somebody absolutely. letting out their spare absolutely. room? Absolutely. Like, you see, 
in in many ways you see uh, Airbnb are slightly different let's say uh, if you look at somebody like Uber where they were coming in and 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 attacking a, a, a pretty dysfunctional business because uh, and and I suppose ununified business in the taxi business whereas Airbnb is attacking something that's pretty well established and well organized and well structured so it's not as easy for those guys even though they are the largest provider of accommodation in the world today with, yeah. with, with a market cap greater than all of the hotel groups put together your, your biggest competitor and yeah. I mean lots of people and I know it's not necessarily you know your field but lots of people blame it for frustrating the housing crisis I mean given the scale of Airbnb units that are on the market in a city like mm-hmm. Dublin do you think do you think is that right or is that there housing- is an element of truth in that particularly in a place like Dublin where there is a shortage of space and it is something that I have spoken about before in terms of needing to look at um, how uh, apartments are going up on Airbnb. And the more you start to regulate the rental sector, you push people into this sector. So I think I think government needs to be careful about how they manage uh, the, the, the rental sector and obviously Airbnb. But to be fair, the, the local authorities and... I suppose the revenue commissioners are paying very close attention to Airbnb. Uh, people may not know, but if they put uh, uh, an apartment up on Airbnb, the revenue know about it. They know about the revenue they've got because Airbnb have to supply that information. But equally, you need planning. Uh, so your typical apartment or house doesn't have planning for short-term lets. Mm. Let's, let's go back to the hotel trade and all the things you must have seen down through the years. Because an awful lot of shenanigans goes on in hotels. You must have seen some great things in your time. What's the worst, what's the strangest thing has ever been left behind in a room? Um, well, well I, I, I tell a story about when, when I became general manager of Jury's Balls Bridge, as it was. Um, we used to have lots of issues with, uh, with lost property. And, and I said, look, we have to sort this out because things would go into lost property and then that gets sent on to the wrong address or whatever it was. Or, so I said, look, we, we have the information. So when something is left in a room, we, we parcel it up and we send it to the address of the person who stayed in the room. So uh, that was going absolutely fine until I got a call from a lady one morning to say that she'd received a nightdress from us, but she had never stayed in the hotel and she wondered why we were sending her something like this. And the penny suddenly dropped that the husband <laughs> was playing away. <laughs> so, oh, God. Did so you I, revise that policy from so that I point revi- on? I, I had to revise my policy very quickly. <laughs> I said, that, that's, there's, there's a good reason for everything. And that was the reason for that. So, so when it comes to the job then that, that, that you do, you yeah. know, creating a great environment for guests, I mean, how do you, what, what are your kind of guiding principles on that? I suppose from, from, from my perspective, uh, and, and I suppose where I've always been is that, that I'm not in the hotel business. I'm in the business of hotels, which is a very distinct difference. And, and essentially, because all my life I've worked, there's been three listed hotel companies in Ireland, which started out with Ryan Hotels, where I spent 20 years, 17 years with Jury's Doyle, which was the second listed company, and now Delata, which is the third listed company. So we were essentially businesses. We were publicly listed companies, so we had to make a profit, and we had to report every six months and do all of that good stuff. So 
the, the, I have to think of it very differently than a, a lot of others. Say, let's say Francis Brennan from the Park and Conmere, who is absolutely in the hotel business. So it's it's a different model and it has to work differently. And we operate. I suppose, uh, through lots of channels in terms of the way we get our business, where somebody like the Park and Kinmare will have probably one or two channels or maybe three, where we'll have dozens. So it's a, it's a very different model that we operate from. But, I mean, I mean, you look back to where you began in the trade in, in, in that, the, the Yates Hotel in Sligo, and, I mean, you must have got then uh, a real sense of you know, personal pride when you saw a guest you know, walking away smiling mm. that you'd done something great for them. Is there any part of that still part of your oh, life absolutely. today now that you're running 40 hotels around? Absolutely, the- 100%. 100%. Like, I, got a, 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 I was I travelling down in my hotels on Thursday and Friday this week and I got an email from a gentleman who stayed in our Silver Springs in Cork. Uh, and he was... Um, praising a couple of people and he named them and that gives you a great sense and I use that as I go around the properties to kind of demonstrate how we should be doing things and and they had a little problem that they wanted sorted out nothing to do with the hotel but this guy went above and beyond the call and he sorted it out for them and and it meant then that their stay was much more relaxed and, and they were in a much better place and that's what you expect do we do it all the time? Of course we don't but you'd like to try and make sure that you do it as many times as possible because, again, you know, we are in a people business. And even though it's it's a business, it's fundamentally around people. So, and you, you have the two sets of people that we have to deal with fundamentally is, is, is our customer and our own staff. So they're kind of the, the two interactive points. And you have what we call the moments of truth. How do we deal with somebody when they're standing in front of you? That's the moment when you have the opportunity to make something great or not so great. Pat McCann, fascinating stuff. Uh, do stay with us because still to come on The Architects of Business, we'll be hearing Pat's story of making big bets on the hotel business just as the economy was crumbling. You're listening to The Architects of Business on Joe in partnership with EY Entrepreneur of the Year. Visit eoy.ie to find out more about the programme and this year's finalists. Get in touch. Mail us on the Architects of Business at joe.ie. Pat, you were mentioning earlier, you've been, this is now your third listed hotel company listed on the Stock Exchange. The first two were Ryan's and Jewelry's, two names that will stick out in many people's memories, although some of our audience might be a bit too young for them. Um, what were the things you kind of learned from those that you've brought with you to Delata? Yeah, I suppose uh, Ryan Hotels were, were, was a very entrepreneurial business. It was started by a guy called Dermot Ryan. Uh, and and um, he he was a, a visionary, um, albeit a little bit uh, disjointed visionary. But but he had lots of very good ideas, and and he did lots of good things. And that kind of taught me that, you know, if you think a little bit ahead, you start to look at things slightly differently, and and you look at what's happening out out in the big bad world, as they say. Uh, and and so we would have looked to particularly the US, what's happening there, but, but even places like the, the Middle East and Far East, what's happening there as well. And albeit it's a very different model and, and their cost structures are totally different to what we have. But in terms of concepts and things like that, you can learn a lot from what goes on elsewhere. And I suppose particularly in, 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 in juries, uh, when we were building the juries Inns, uh, which was a fantastic business. It was started in... Uh, uh, May of 1993, and it got sold in 2007 for 1.165 billion. Wow! Uh, so in 2007, seven, right? So, um, 
quite a sizable business uh, that was built up from from nothing. And I was I was in that right from the beginning. In fact, I was involved in the design and the concept and all of that uh, before we opened the door of a place. Um, so that was quite an exciting business. So when when I got the opportunity in Delata, like uh, a business, as I say, that was uh, was was conceived in February of 2007 and born in August of that year. Uh, I, I my plan was always to do what we're doing today. It got a little bit delayed in 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 the process because of obviously events, dear boy, got in the way. And uh, that being the crash, that being the crash. And of course, you know, I, I remember vividly when we were raising the funds to buy Delat in the first instance, everybody's talking a little bit about a credit crunch, but nah, it was no concern. It would go away <laughs> and, you know, life would go on as normal and everything would be wonderful. And of course, that's not what happened at all. But I suppose it shows the resilience of the business because uh, like in, in, in 2009, like that was our worst year. Uh, we were pretty okay, oh seven, oh eight, and nine was was really the problem year. But but even with that, as as we say, we never we didn't waste a good crisis because what we did was we went to the banks and receivers and we offered to manage hotels on their behalf, uh, and we ended up taking thirty seven hotels from banks and receivers, which we managed for a number of years. Uh, and that gave us income, but it also gave us depth and strength. So when what's it, when, when you get lemons, sent lemons, you make lemonade from it. it sounds, that's like something you did. Absolutely. Well, I suppose we were always good at taking opportunity, and 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 juries would have been no different. We were we we, we spotted gaps and we moved to fill those. And in Delata, we're exactly the same. We we spot gaps and we fill them. So. We knew then by 2012 that the market had started to recover, even though people didn't quite believe it. But we could see movement in the right direction. Hence, we went out to raise some funds uh, and we tried to do it with private equity in 2013, which was really a waste. And then in 2014, we decided, let's float the business. But talk to me a little bit more, though, about those early days of the crash, as yeah. it were, the early days of the company. 2007, you started, yeah. you had a, a wad of cash in the bank from having sold off juries and you decided to, to pour it into something yeah. pour it into something new. Yeah. I mean, how did those early years then pan out? Was there ever a point where you kind of thought with the crash, God, I've, I've, I've backed a lemon here and, and, and things aren't going to go my way? Absolutely. Like, like, as I say, 2009 was a very difficult year for us. And, and it was it was a... I suppose, a, a salutary lesson in the fact that while you think everything will go in smoothly and, and, and you don't need to worry, of course, we did need to worry. We were lucky in the way we had structured the business back in 2007 and that we had pretty low debt and pretty high uh, equity, which means we were well capitalised. So we weren't struggling around the edges uh, to trying to pay off debt or interest. So that that stood to us as well. So I suppose hindsight is a wonderful thing, but when you're setting up a business, just make sure you get the balance between equity and debt mm. right. But I mean, you, you, you had the assets, so obviously nobody was going to take them away from you, but on, on paper they must have looked like they were worthless. Oh, they were worthless. Like like the value of the business in 2009, we had paid $46 million for it in 2007. And the value of the business in 2009 was 2 million euro. That, I mean, I can't even begin to work out the percentages on that. Yeah, but it's, so, so it's it shocking. was pretty devastating in that sense. Uh, and of course, then 
time moves on because in 2014 that value had risen to 40 million and today it's tipping 1.3 billion so so the numbers kind of more uh, percentages i can't work out very quickly <laughs> but but i suppose uh, it 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 taught us you know that that you have to be ever vigilant and that to make assumptions that you know that everything will go smoothly it simply doesn't work like that business is not like that anyway so but I mean, how did you convince people to kind of throw uh, good money after bad in in at that you know the time of the crash well at the time of the crash we weren't raising any money at that point so we 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 stuck with what we had and and like a lot of my investors who came into me in 2007 stayed with me and are still with me actually today uh, and have done thankfully done well um, so they they were very resilient and 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 stuck with 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 the cause as we would call it, um, and and so we weren't we weren't under pressure on that side, believe it or not, which which was good, um, and they could see what we were trying to do, and and you know even though we were a pub and not a public company at that point, we behaved like we were a, a listed company, and I used to meet all my shareholders at least once a year. Uh, to tell them about the business and what we were doing and what we were trying to do more importantly and where we had still planned to take it. And most of them felt that the story was still good enough to stay with it. So you made the, the kind of the best of a bad situation, running those hotels on the behalf of receivers who had taken yeah. them on and then I guess starting picking up assets pretty cheap. I mean, lots of people kind of criticise big companies for buying yeah. things on the cheap when the crash came. I mean, obviously, it's different when you're on the buying end and you yeah. realise you get a bar. Did you get any big bargains? We did. We had, what, what did you pick up for a song? We, 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 well, if, if I take it, we bought um, Clayton Sligo, Clayton Galway and Clayton Whites in Wexford for a total of £43 million. Those three hotels, the cost of developing them was £145 million. Um, we picked up Moran Bewley for 453 million. Uh, in 2008, six of those hotels, we, we got nine hotels for that, six of those had sold for 600 million. So we, we, we got a lot, a lot of good bargains um, along the way. But that, like, a bargain is what somebody is prepared to pay for it. And what, uh, I mean, and, and we knew that from once the banks would start to sell, they'd sell quickly and below what we call replacement cost because you couldn't build a hotel for that amount of money. Mm. So we bought hotels that were well below replacement cost and that, that stood to us and still stands to us today. You mentioned another name in the hotel trade there that some people might remember, Morins. I mean, what's the difference between a firm like you guys that set up in 2007 and went very aggressively yeah. into the market versus uh, a name like that that's been around for, for quite some time yeah. uh, but that didn't you know have, have didn't come close to your scale now and ended up being swallowed up by you i think the big difference was the level of debt both of us had it's simply down to that it wasn't the fact that they were bad at what they were doing because they weren't uh it was it was just that they had too much debt and it, it, the, the business couldn't cope with it it's as simple as that there's no there's no other difference actually so, I mean, it sounds like that's a, a, a big tip for you when it comes to getting into business, being careful with, with debt. debt versus equity. Absolutely. Absolutely. And making sure that your balance sheet is maintained in good stead. It's, it is so important. And people forget that. And they really forget it when, when the market is strong and everything is going well. And they're sure, what's the problem? You know, what could possibly go wrong? Well, we all know what could possibly go wrong. Mm. 
Well, what about um, attracting money then as, as you go along, getting that, that new investment? I think you mentioned a fundraising round. So, so what, what, what we do now is, obviously, we, we, we raised uh, three lumps of equity uh, back in, in, in 2015 um, um, and, and in, uh, sorry, 14 and 15. And uh, we obviously raised some debt. We ra- we, between debt and equity, just over a half a billion in uh, equity and about 300 million odd in uh, in debt. So about 840 million in total raised. Um, and and we've put that money all to good use. So we were we were buying hotels when it made sense to buy them and we were building them now when it makes sense to build. Uh, but now we're moving into a different phase where rather than own hotels, we will do long-term leases. Uh, so we've done a partnership with Deke Bank out of Germany, out of Frankfurt, uh, who own four of our hotels currently. Uh, the most notable of that would be Clayton Burlington Road, which is the old Burlington for lots of people. Um, and we will do more of that in the UK. So currently we are in planning for five hotels in the UK, about 1,500-odd rooms in those five hotels, and they will be owned by one of these investment houses, uh, and we will do a 30, 35-year lease arrangement with those. So they will own and build the hotel, and we will lease it. And rather than going back to our equity shareholders, it's a new way of funding our growth going forward. So many of the big names in, in, in hotel, you know, in, in the hotel business these days, and I say big names, I, I suppose what I mean is startups. Yes. They don't have names that w- most people will know yes. because, you know, you'll have a, a rich person invest in some hotels or bring in one of the big international chain names yes. to kind of market it yes. and, and be part of yeah, that. franchise system, yeah. Why did you kind of say, actually, no, I'm going to make my own brands? Because um, it's, it's, it's very simple. The, the way we operate is very different to most hotel companies in that when you look at large hotel companies, they have a, what we call a very centralized management structure in that... They bring a lot of things to the centre, whereas we do the opposite. We decentralise. So each hotel is set up as a business in its own right with its own team of people. And our general managers are trained and developed to run that as if they owned it. And they make decisions on the ground for the day. And as a result, we will outperform against our competitive set. And we're already doing that in the UK. Uh, And it's down to the fact that we have decentralised our model. And... The difficulty for our competition to catch us is that they don't have the structure and the development going on with their people that we do. So if I was to tell you that today there is 267 people in Delata on senior development programs, that does not include the, the thousand people who are on what we call skills and craft training, and that's today. And we grow our own people. So when we open our five new hotels this year, the, the eight to ten people of the senior management team have grown up in Delata. So you de-risk the model by having your own team in place. And then we build a local team around that. But having our own team of people who know us and we know them. So, for example, just down the road here in Kevin Street, there was ten people. Anne-Marie, who was general manager in Smithfield, she came along. And she is the general manager in this brand new hotel. And she's brought people from other uh, skills within Delata to run those hotels. And as a result of all of those five hotels opening, there's another 125 people have got promoted in Delata since the beginning of, of, of January this year. And that, that means that there's opportunity for people. So what do you look for in people? 
the first and foremost, if you're not a nice person, I don't want you in Delata. <laughs> and if you don't like intensity, you're not going to work in Delata because you won't survive. Uh, because we are a very intensive business. And it is, if you're looking for a quiet life, I would suggest don't come to Delata because it is not the place for you. If you want a place where it's changing, where everything is up for grabs, where you're allowed to have your say, you can uh, express yourself in many ways, we're the guys. But if you're not like that, don't bother because it won't work for you. What's intensity for you, though? Is it, is it working very hard for eight or nine hours or being on for 13 or 14 it, hours? It, no, 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 no. I, 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 when... when I, I, I always say to people, if you can't manage yourself, you can't manage my business. And by managing yourself is managing your time that you spend in the business as productively as possible. And if you're there for a very long hours, you're probably not going to do what I need to do. So we, I like people to take their time off. I like them to manage their hours. I don't expect them to be there 24-7. I like them to take their holidays. I like them to do all the things that make them better people in themselves. So it's not about that, but it's about when you're there, it's full on. So uh, say I'm a, a relatively new recruit to the business and I've just got my first, you know, property of my own, as yeah. it were, a hotel of my own. Uh, and I'm struggling with that time management thing. It's like, yeah. Pat, you know, I mean, I find I'm just there until late or nine in the evening. Yeah. What, what, what do you tell me? What are your tips for, for time management? I, 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 I always, in fact, it's what I talk to our general managers most about, about managing themselves and about, it's down to things even like self-development. What are they doing about, you know, making sure? So I will arrange development programs for them and I will send somebody in I, I might send another general manager mentor in to say to them look go in and spend a few days uh, with them and just help them through and just point them in the direction where it'll improve their lot so we do take corrective action around things like that okay so I mean Delata is, is, is really growing a pace now where do you want to see the business in in 10 years time I, I suppose I, I, I'd love to see it still a very large... Like, like we have ambitions to be what we call a pan-European player. And that, that is simply our, our ambition. And we have, we have a model and a system that's unique, that is very exportable in that sense. And as long as we keep focusing on what I call the basics, we'll do very well. If we take our eye off that, we won't. So as long as we keep producing people because the biggest weakness in our model is our inability to produce people and and people who understand the way we manage our business because if I'm looking for general managers I can't get them out there because they they don't fit into our model they have to come through our system so I don't care whether you're the best general manager in the world if you come into Delata you go move back a step and you grow because if uh, otherwise it, it risks your model. And, and, and the other thing that you have to be mindful as well within an organisation is that people who are growing up with you at a senior level, that they can keep pace with the business. Because what happens in a lot of organisations is they start out relatively small and then people struggle as the organisation gets bigger. So you need to make sure that they have expansion capabilities as well. So all of those things have to be watched. So in, in 10 years' time, you want Delata to be, as you call it, a, a pan-European player. 
what do you think the market is going to look like in 10 years time though because i'm thinking of those really big names in 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 the global hotel trade the likes of uh, what's it marriott and starwood yes. recently yes. got together, got together and yeah. they're they're one company i mean do you see more of that happening and, and how will the latter fit into that jigsaw well as a, as a publicly listed company you're always vulnerable and your shareholders decide where where you go. So, you know, this idea that you're in control of that is simply not true. It's your shareholders decide, you know, what's best. And if they think that you're the person or that the team in Delatte is the people that will give them the biggest return, that's where they'll stay. If they feel that there's somebody else that'll give them a greater return, that's where they'll go to. Shareholders aside, but management can kind of push it one way or the other. Not, not, not as simple as, as, as that. You can obviously defend your position uh, if you get a bid in. And, and it depends. And we saw earlier this year Smurf at Kappa defending their position quite well from a, uh, somebody who wanted to take them over. So, But equally, chief executives can talk to each other and think that actually our two businesses would work well together and make a proposal yeah, to shareholders. You can do that um, uh, and, and, and you can create mergers and things like that. But you need to be careful about mergers. Uh, history of mergers is, um, I suppose, littered with failure. Because what you tend to do is you bring two cultures together that don't ever seem to work. And and what you need to be careful about is that you don't bring that together and, in fact, you end up destroying both companies. And that happens quite a lot. So you need to be very, very careful about that. Did you have trouble ever integrating those hotels that you bought into your culture? Yes, and I, I, I suppose we, we, we learned a lot from our acquisition of the Doyle Group back in, in, in the, the late 90s, where, you know, you, you brought them in and, you know, you always have this uh, issue about the, the victor and the vanquished. And what you can never do is make sure that the people that's coming into the organisation feel it any way that they have let the side down. Because if you get taken over, you always feel you've done something wrong. And of course, that's not true at all. But what you need to do is make sure that people feel part of the new organisation and it's the new organisation, I suppose, moving ahead. And the other thing that you should never do is people say, well, you take the best out of both cultures and you put it in and and you merge. That is, that is, 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 is absolutely daft. If, so, it, so there is a victor and a vanquisher. There has to be in the sense of the way the culture of the business is. And if the culture is strong enough, it'll absorb those people much easier. It sounds like you'd be uh, disappointed if, if in 10 years' time Delata is, is, is vanquished, as it were, as opposed to a, a growing victor. Oh, it would be a disaster. <laughs> Absolute disaster. Uh, uh, like, like, I suppose. But again, you know, you're always at risk of that. That's the reality. That's what you face. Um, and, you know, I guarantee you that, that probably every day of the week there's some private equity guy in London or New York uh, running the numbers on Delata and saying, is there an opportunity? That's, that's what the world you're in. And that's business. And that's a badge of success in, it, in itself. It is, yeah. But what, what, what you want to do is be in such a strong place that, that it makes it kind of almost not a feasible project for them to look at. Okay. Fascinating stuff. Pat McCann, thank you very much for coming in and talk to us today. Thank you very much. Delighted to talk to you. Thanks for joining us today on The Architects of Business. Thanks to our guest, Pat McCann, our producer, Patrick Hohey, and all of the team here at Joe. This programme is made in partnership with EY Entrepreneur of the Year. Go to their website, eoy.ie, to learn more about the finalists for this year. Don't forget, you don't have to miss out on future editions or indeed past editions of The Architects of Business. You can subscribe for free on iTunes, on your favourite Android podcast app, or you can watch us on YouTube and check 
check out some of Joe's other podcasts too, including the Hard Yards on Rugby, the GAA Hour, and our movie show, The Big Review Ski. I'm Ty Genwright. Thanks so much for being with us today, and we hope to see you next time. Bye-bye. The Architects of Business on Joe, in partnership with the EY Entrepreneur of the Year programme, telling the story of Ireland's leading entrepreneurs across the island of Ireland.